welcome to Darkgate Horror Podcast number 11, which we will discuss women gothic writers. I've been reading classic novels for many years since I discovered Edith Wharton's House of Mirth, John Steinbeck, and Nathaniel Hawthorne back in junior high. I'll give you a little history of women's role in horror and supernatural fiction, and then discuss two of my favorite works, a supernatural short story, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and Mary Shelley's masterpiece, Frankenstein. Finally, I'll give you some recommended reading on the subject. There are so many great horror and gothic works by women of the Romantic, Victorian, and Edwardian eras, not to mention the great authors writing today, such as Anne Rice. I could teach a class on this topic, so for simplicity's sake, I will not be discussing the other writers and the extended history of the subject. Many of the writings of this genre are difficult to procure, although recent interest in the topic has pushed more stories into current press. This is a topic I am personally drawn to, and I hope that the men listening will appreciate the approach and even delve into the rich subject matter. You may notice I sound a little bit different. I do have a new microphone that I'm trying out. So far, I really like it. You'll just have to bear with me in case there are some audio issues. So let's get started. To begin, let's talk about history. Here's an excerpt and summary from the article The Gothic Experience by a professor of English at Cooney in Brooklyn. The first wave of Gothic novels, 1765 to 1820. Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto, 1765, is considered the beginning of the English Gothic novel. Contemporary readers find the novel original, full of suspense due to the remove and medieval setting, use of the supernatural. These things are stereotypes now due to the application in film and literature since this novel. Modern readers may find the novel dull, but the novel is so incredibly popular, oft imitated by other writers, and started the gothic genre. In fact, the genre takes its name from the Castle of Otranto's medieval or gothic setting. Anne Radcliffe was the most popular and best-paid novelist of the 18th century England. She incorporated suspense, atmosphere, and portrayed increasingly complex, fascinatingly, horrifyingly evil villains, focusing on the heroine and her struggle with the villain. Her best work is thought to be The Mysteries of Odolfo in 1793. I hope to read this in the coming months. Matthew Lewis wrote The Monk in 1796. The novel follows Ambrosio, a lust-driven monk from one abominable act to another, rape, incest, matricide, burial alive, to his gory death and well-deserved damnation. It was enormously successful and controversial. In On the Supernatural and Poetry, Radcliffe distinguished between the effect her her novels achieved, terror, and the effect Lewis's achieved, horror. Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. I apprehend that neither Shakespeare nor Milton by their fictions, nor Mr. Burke by his reasoning, anywhere look to positive horror as a source of the sublime, although they all agree that terror is a very high one. And where lies the great difference between horror and terror, but in the uncertainty and obscurity that accompany the first, and respecting the dreaded evil? Their different approaches to the novel of terror, as it was called in the 18th century, have been called by some critics terror gothic, represented by Radcliffe, and horror gothic, represented by Lewis. Sometimes the same distinction is tied to gender, with female equated with terror gothic and male being equated with horror gothic. In 1818, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein introduced the theme of the dangers of science. She wrote what has been called the first science fiction novel, she, of course, thought she was writing a novel of terror. The publication of Charles Maturin's Melmoth, The Wander, in 1820 is the last of what some critics have called the classic Gothic novel, and for what others mark the end of the true Gothic novel. His forte in showing character under extreme conditions, both psychologically and physically, 
Melmoth has sold his soul to the devil to live another 150 years, with and out, if he can find someone else to take his place. The novel is powerful and certainly one of the great tales of mystery and terror, despite its loose structure. Gothic Fiction in the 19th Century An early writer who transformed Gothic fiction was Edgar Allan Poe. He contributed a sophisticated analysis of the psychological processes, insight into the unconscious, a sense of structure, and insistence on unity of tone and mood. His work shows the close connection between Gothic fiction and detective fiction, which grows out of the Gothic, and the continuing overlap between Gothic fiction and science fiction. The product of a skeptical age, the modern ghost story developed late in the 19th century. Gothic fiction in the 20th century. The horror tale experienced an upsurge in popularity at the beginning of the 20th century. Perhaps it can be explained at least in part as a way of expressing the horrors of World War I and the revulsion at its devastation. Several new variants of Gothic fiction arose. A commercially successful mass Gothic novel, often called Modern Gothic, is particularly written for women by women and started with some novels by Victoria Holt and Phyllis A. Whitney, which were issued by Ace Books in the 1960s. These novels follow a pattern. An innocent, inexperienced young heroine suspects her superior suitor or husband, who is usually older, often wealthy, and worldly-wise of a crime. She may have to compete with an older woman for his affections, a competition she, of course, wins. A tendency to the macabre and bizarre, which appears in writers like William Faulkner, Truman Capote, and Flannery O'Connor, has been called Southern Gothic. The contemporary writers James Purdy, Joyce Carol Oates, and John Hawkes have been linked under the name of New American Gothic. Some Connections It is generally agreed that Gothicism is related to Romanticism. What is not generally agreed upon is what the connections are. The two movements are connected chronologically, use many of the same themes like the hero-villain with the secret, and deal with psychological processes. Elements of the Gothic have also made their way into mainstream writing. They are found in Sir Walter Scott's novels, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, and Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. With that overview in mind, let's discuss the characteristics of the genre a little bit more in detail. This is from an article by a Yale professor that was unnamed. The Gothic novel dominated English literature during the late 18th century and early 19th century, often architectural ruins, monasteries, forlorn characters, elements of the supernatural, and the overall feelings of melancholy and madness prevailed in Gothic works. It seems likely that the Gothic novel was a reaction to the increased disillusionment and enlightenment thinking. The Gothic genre's bizarre images and obsessions with death, evil, and mystery reflect a reaction to the age of reason, order, and politics of 19th century England. Gothicism is part of the Romantic movement that started in the late 18th century and lasted to roughly three decades into the 19th century. The Romantic movement is characterized by innovation instead of traditionalism, Spontaneity, according to Wordsworth, good poetry is a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Freedom of thought and expression, especially the thoughts and feelings of the poet himself, and idealization of nature, romantic poets were also referred to as nature poets, and the belief of living in an age of a new beginning and high possibility. The first novel that was later identified as Gothic was, as we mentioned before, Horace Walpole's The Castle of Entranto, a Gothic story in 1764. This novel, like many other Gothic novels, is set in a medieval society, has a lot of mysterious disappearances as well as other supernatural occurrences. The main protagonist is usually a solitary character who has an egocentrical nature. Even though the genre is a phase in the Romantic movement, it is regarded as the forerunner to the modern mystery or science fiction novel. Many of the above-mentioned elements appear in Frankenstein. The bleak glacial fields of the Alps and the mists of the Arctic serve to indicate the isolation of the two protagonists. 
The solitary character in Frankenstein can apply to both Victor and his creation, as they both live their lives in social isolation. Although gothic novels were written mainly to evoke terror in the readers, they also served to show the dark side of human nature. They describe the nightmarish terrors that lie beneath the controlled and ordered surface of the conscious mind. Surprisingly, there were a vast number of female gothic authors. It is not unlikely that this kind of fiction provided a release for the submerged desires of the disadvantaged class. The gothic genre also extends to poetry. Poems by Coleridge and Keats, Christabel and the Eve of St. Agnes, respectively, deal with the fantastic and the exploration of the unconscious mind. Science fiction explores the marvels of discovery and achievement that may result from future developments in science and technology. Mary Shelley used some of these most recent technological findings of her time to create Frankenstein. She has replaced the heavily fire of the Prometheus myth, which I'll discuss later, and the spark of newly discovered electricity. The concepts of electricity and warmth led to the discovery of the galvanization process, which was said to be the key to the animation of life. Indeed, it is this process which animates Frankenstein's monster. So the female goth. Ellen Mares is known for establishing the term female gothic as an element of literary analysis. According to Mares, female gothic refers to writings where fantasy predominates over reality, the strange over the commonplace, and the supernatural over the natural, with one definite actorial intent, to scare. Gilman's story, The Yellow Wallpaper, has been called gothic because of its focus on madness and its horrifying conclusion. Some critics even chose to compare Gilman's story to the stories of Edgar Allan Poe because of its remarkable depiction of the deterioration of the human mind. In addition, Gilman's narrator's madness is focused on the wallpaper serving a similar function to Poe's famous black cat or telltale heart. Almost 100 years before Gilman's story was published, Anne Radcliffe established a standard for the gothic novel written by a woman writer. Radcliffe's novel's central figure is a young woman who was a persecuted victim and courageous heroine. Applying this definition to the yellow wallpaper, it is clear to see that the story has been called gothic. Further complicating the analysis of Gilman's story as a gothic tale is Mary's discussion of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a novel about creation, birth, and its traumatic aftermath. Shelley established fear, guilt, depression, and anxiety as commonplace reactions to birth. In real life, Gilman's own nervous condition followed the birth of her daughter, Catherine, and paralleled the narrator's madness, which revolves around the yellow wallpaper of an old nursery. Unlike many other gothic tales, Gilman's story is not simply about a haunted environment or an estranged woman. The story connects both setting and character with a chilling effect. Of course, these links will be in the show notes on the website. The Yellow Wallpaper is a short story by author Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It was first published in 1892 in the New England Magazine. Let's talk about her biography. She's best known for this short story, but she wrote thousands of works from short journalism to book-length discussions of the social realities of women's lives and poetry. Her book, Women and Economics, was hailed as a major accomplishment and republished in several languages. Vassar College even used it as a textbook for a short time. Gilman's major concern during her lifetime was feminism. Women's suffrage was known as women's economic independence. She also self-published a magazine titled The Forerunner for seven years. The magazine is an incredible collection of thought and ideas and an example of how driven she was. She was born Charlotte Anna Perkins on July 3, 1860 in Hartford, Connecticut. Her mother was Mary Fitch Westcott. Her father was Frederick Beecher Perkins. This made Gilman the great-granddaughter of Lyman Beecher and the great-niece of Henry Ward Beecher and Harriet Beecher Stowe. She had a brother, Thomas Eighty, who was 14 years older. There were two siblings who died in infancy. Gilman's mother was told that she should have no other children, and soon after this her father left the family alone. Critics have speculated that the reason for his abandonment was fear of killing his wife and childbirth. The family was sent to live with relations, 
and they were the poor relations who moved around constantly during Gilman's childhood. Perhaps this is one reason that Gilman herself developed ambivalent feelings towards marriage and vowed not to marry. Of course, that vow was broken when she married Charles Walter Stetson. Their marriage was a rocky one, eventually ending in a controversial divorce. They had one daughter, Catherine Beecher Stetson, who was born March 23, 1885. Many years later, in 1900, Gilman was remarried to her cousin George Houghton Gilman. They remained happily married until his sudden death, May 4, 1934. After his death, Gilman moved to California to be with her daughter and her family. Gilman learned in 1932 she had incurable breast cancer. As an advocate for the right to die, Gilman committed suicide on August 17, 1935, by taking an overdose of chloroform. She, quote, chose chloroform over cancer, as her autobiography and suicide note stated. During her life, Gilman published a huge volume of work, much of which of which is unavailable to the modern reader. However, much of her work is beginning to be recognized as important and republished. She was an incredibly influential and ahead-of-her-time woman and deserves more recognition. A bit of background to the story. The Yellow Wallpaper is a castigation of Gilman's own doctor, Silas Ware Mitchell, who tried to cure her from depression through a rest cure. The idea was to do nothing, certainly not anything intellectually demanding or challenging, This had a debilitating effect on Gilman as she regarded it as punitive rest more than anything else. Though this story is not an exact record of what Gilman went through, the central theme of the wallpaper is fictional as the author said she has never had objections to her mural decoration, it is extremely similar. The events of the story are not as important to the message which Gilman is trying to communicate, which is to call to action. Gilman was desperately trying to legitimize her condition and discover an effective treatment. So here's a plot synopsis. The plot details in first person in the form of a series of journal entries, the descent into madness of a woman suffering from what her physician husband describes as a temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency. The story hints a part of the woman's problem is that she recently gave birth to a child, insinuating she may be suffering from what would in modern times be called postpartum depression. The narrator is confined to an upstairs room to recuperate by her well-meaning but dictatorial and oblivious husband, but this treatment only exacerbates her depression. The room is decorated with yellow wallpaper that becomes the focal point of her insanity. She devotes many journal entries to obsessively describing the wallpaper, its yellow smell, its brickneck scrawling pattern, and the fact that it leaves yellow smears on the skin and clothing of anyone who touches it. She also obsesses over the hatred she believes radiates from the room, supposing it must have been a nursery, and that the children who lived in it hated the wallpaper as much as she did. She describes how the longer they stay in the bedroom, the more the wallpaper appears to mutate and change, especially in the moonlight. Though at first this mutation takes no particular form, she eventually reaches the conclusion that the figure is trying to escape the bars from the shadows, and that there is a woman creeping on all fours behind them. It then goes on to say that there are numerous women behind the wallpaper, all creeping about. Eventually, the woman descends into complete insanity, thinking she is a woman who has escaped from inside the wallpaper. She becomes so disassociated from reality that, at the end of the story, she frightens her husband so badly he faints. She no longer seems to recognize him as her husband. He is only that man whose prone body is merely an obstacle in her endlessly looping trip around the room. So let's talk about interpretation of this story. As with many works of fiction, the yellow wallpaper can be and has been subject to several interpretations and interpretive methods. The story has been interpreted by feminist critics as a condemnation of the androcentric hegemony of the 19th century medical profession. The narrator's suggestions about her recuperation, that she should work instead of rest, that she should engage with society instead of remaining isolated, 
that she should attempt to be a mother instead of of being separated entirely from her child, etc., are dismissed out of hand using language that stereotypes her as an irrational being and therefore not qualified to offer ideas about her own condition. Other feminist readings have pointed out the inequality of the marriage described in the story and have discussed the aspect of the story in relation to Victorian ideals and traditions of marriage. Impossible rebuttal to feminist interpretations, it can be pointed out that almost any physician of the period would have been equally dismissive of a male patient's nervous breakdown symptoms and might have prescribed a similar regimen of rest. The yellow wallpaper, sometimes referred to as an example of Gothic literature for its treatment of madness and powerlessness, It's been published in collections of horror fiction, which have led some to speculate that the women in the wallpaper are actually ghosts bent on driving the narrator insane, and not hallucinations. The strong feminist statements claimed for the work and the author's own explanations do not lend support to this interpretation. In terms of feminism, it should be noted that this short story was written during the Victorian era, a particularly stifling time for women, and thus the women's behavior can be seen as a reaction against the social forces. Another interpretation is to doubt the veracity of many of the narrator's early statements. There may never have been a husband, sister, baby, or any other characters as described in the story, meaning the entire story, or a large part of it, is the product of a deluded mind, so the reader cannot know what is true and what is not. Finally, she makes herself the woman inside the prison of yellow wallpaper, completely overtaken by her irrational reality. I don't subscribe to any one of these interpretations as a student of of psychology and one who studied mental illness. The story is fascinating in that aspect, but I also like the idea that it is a horror story because it does give you chills as you read the ending of the story. Let's move on to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and we'll start with the biography of Mary Wollenstonecraft Shelley. She was born in Somerstown, Great Britain in 1797 to well-known parents, author and feminist Mary Wollenstonecraft and philosopher William Goldwyn. Unfortunately, Wollenstonecraft dies as a result of Mary's birth. Mary is therefore raised by her father and a much-resented stepmother. When Mary's 16, she meets the young poet Percy Bussey Shelley, a devotee of her father's teachings. Together with Mary's stepsister, they run off to continental Europe several times, not hindered by the fact that Shelley was already married. In the summer of 1816, a tour of continental Europe was proposed. A stop in Switzerland, the couple and Mary's stepsister Claire rented a house near another British writer, Lord Byron. The summer proved wet and unseasonable. Byron suggested the group take to writing ghost stories to pass the time. It was during this summer that the form of Frankenstein was to take shape. The story was first only a few pages, but with the encouragement of Percy, the tale took on a greater length. Mary's story, the best of the group, was so frightening to Byron that he ran shrieking in horror from the room. Frankenstein was published in 1818. Later that same year, Percy's wife drowns herself. Percy and Mary were married in December 1816. The last years of married life are filled with disaster for Mary. Her half-sister dies, as do two of her children. Mary becomes depressed, a tendency she probably inherited from her mother, and she is only partially relieved by the birth of Percy, their only surviving child. Mary and Percy eventually move to Italy, where Percy drowns during a sailing trip in 1822. Mary is determined to keep the memory of her late husband alive. She publishes several editions of Percy's writings and adds notes and prefaces to them. She also continues writing her own novels, the most famous one being The Last Man in 1826. This book deals with human isolation just as her earlier novel Frankenstein did. She writes several short stories and contributes biographical and critical studies to the Cabinet Cyclopedia. Mary spends the last years of her life in the loving company of her son and two good friends. She tries very hard to free herself from the strains put on her by being the daughter and wife of such well-known people. 
She maintains her liberal opinions, but at the same time tries to fit into a more conservative society. She even writes an apology in her journal, which reveals the stresses of a life spent trying to measure up to that example. Mary died in 1851 at the age of 53. So let's move on to a plot summary. The novel begins with explorer Robert Walton looking for a new new passage from Russia to the Pacific Ocean via the Arctic Ocean. After weeks at sea, the crew of Walton's ship finds an emaciated man, Victor Frankenstein, floating on an ice floe near death. In Walton's series of letters to his sister in England, he retells Victor's tragic story. Growing up in Geneva, Switzerland, Victor is a precocious child, quick to learn all new subjects. He is raised by, with Elizabeth, an orphan adopted by his family. Victor delights in the sciences and vows to someday study science. Victor prepares to leave for his studies at the University of Ingolstadt when his mother and Elizabeth become ill with scarlet fever. Carolyn dies from the disease and Elizabeth is nursed back to health. At the university, Victor meets his professors M. Kemp and M. Waldman. For two years, Victor becomes very involved with his studies, even impressing his teachers and fellow students. He devises a plan to recreate and reanimate a dead body. He uses a combination of chemistry, alchemy, and electricity to make his ambition a reality. After bringing the creature to life, Victor feels guilty that he has brought a new life into the world with no provisions for taking care of the monster. He runs away in fear and disgust from his creation and his conscience. The monster wanders the countryside while Victor seeks solace in a tavern near the university. Henry Clerval appears to save Victor and restore him to health. Alphonse writes to Victor, telling him to come home immediately since an unknown assailant murdered his youngest brother, William, by strangulation. Justine Moritz, their housekeeper, is falsely accused of the murder of William, and she goes to the gallows willingly. Victor knows who the killer is, but cannot tell his family or the police. His journeys out of Geneva to refresh his tortured soul and visits Mount Montevert, where he sees the monster coming to confront his maker with a proposition— Make me a mate of my own. Victor refuses, and the monster asks that his part of the story be heard. The pair retreat to a small hut in the mountain where the monster tells a story. The monster has taught himself to read and understand language so that he can follow the lives of his adopted family, the De Lacy's. While the monster wanders the woods, he becomes he comes upon a jacket and a notebook and letters that were lost by Victor. From the notes, the monster learns his creation. He has endured re- rejection by mankind, but he has not retaliated upon mankind in general for his misfortune. Instead, he decided to take revenge on his creator's family to avenge the injury and sorrow he endures from others. Victor refuses to make a second monster, but is convinced with him when the monster assures Victor that he will leave Europe and move to South America. Victor agrees to begin work on a second creation and makes plans to go to Europe and Scotland with Henry Clerval to begin his secret work. Before he leaves Geneva, Victor agrees to marry Elizabeth immediately upon his return from the British Isles. Victor takes up residence in the Orkney Islands off the coast of Scotland. He destroys his project and goes out to sea to dispose of the remains. The monster vows revenge on Victor by not upholding his end of the bargain. While at sea, Victor's boat is blown off course by a sudden storm and he ends up in Ireland. Henry Clerval's body is washed up on the shores of Ireland and Victor is set to stay in trial for murder. Fortunately, Mr. Kerwin, a local magistrate, intercedes on Victor's behalf and pleads his case before a court, which then finds Victor innocent of the crime. Victor is miserable knowing he has caused the deaths of so many, but recovers enough to finalize his plans for his marriage to Elizabeth. With a wedding date set, Victor torments himself on the thought of the monster's threat to be with him on his wedding night. The wedding goes off as planned. While Victor makes sure he covers all possible entrances that the monster could use to get into the wedding chamber, the monster steals into Elizabeth's room and strangles her. Victor now wants revenge and chases the monster through Europe and Russia. He nearly catches the monster near the Arctic Circle when Walter 
or when Robert Walton discovers him. Victor, now near death, is taken aboard Walton's ship to recover from exhaustion and exposure. The monster appears out of the mists in the ice to visit his foe one last time. The monster enters the cabin of the ship and tells Walton his side of the story. Victor dies, and the monster tells Walton that he will burn his own funeral pyre. The monster then disappears into the waves of darkness, never to be seen again. Let's move on to analysis of this story. The subtitle, The Modern Prometheus, refers to a figure in Greek mythology who was responsible for a conflict between mankind and the gods. In order to help the people, Prometheus stole Zeus's fire from the sun. The people were thereby given an advantage to the animals since fire gave man the ability to make weapons and tools. Prometheus was severely punished by Zeus who chained him to a rock in the Caucasus. Every night, Prometheus was visited by an eagle who ate from his liver. During the day, however, his liver grew back to its original state. It also refers to the story of Prometheus Plasticator, who was said to have created and animated mankind out of clay. These two myths were eventually fused together. The fire that Prometheus has stolen is the fire of life from which he animated his clay models. Because of the creating aspect, Prometheus became a symbol for the creating artist in the 18th century. Victor Frankenstein can be seen as the modern Prometheus. He defies the gods by creating life himself. Instead of being the created, Victor takes God's place and becomes the creator. Just as Prometheus, Victor gets punished for his deeds. He is, however, punished by his creation, whereas Prometheus was punished by the god who stole from. Why has this book endured for almost 200 years? As society changes, the story still applies. The book is quite different from the films. And as usual, the book is far superior to film adaptations and spoofs. It may be argued the book is science fiction or horror. It is a strong psychological drama and the essence a tale of undoing and destruction of a man. The book has long passages of philosophy, very academic, and underlies the entire plot. There is also quite a lot of reflection of the main characters and is told in the manner of letter writing, so the reflections are not a distraction in the least. I consider this book to be horror based on the overall tone and, of course, the rather high body count. The book does not contain a creation scene like that in the films. The actual creation is spoke of in few words and without any details at all. Frankenstein states that he does not want to tell Walton the details in fear that someone else would replicate his work. Convenient, but I was relieved because it made it seem more realistic. As I said, there was a lot of natural philosophy discussion known today as natural sciences, example, physics, chemistry. It leads us to the overall question, what should we do with our expanding scientific powers? What do you do when you hold the secret to life and death? Frankenstein creates life and he turns from it. He is a man of great scientific promise at university and as soon as the creature is created, his personality changes dramatically into a man of extreme guilt, depression, and fear. Frankenstein does not learn from his mistake and move on. He devotes his life to the creature's demise. Frankenstein and the creature are highly developed characters. I never thought I would sympathize with a monster, but I found myself torn between the two from the second volume to the end. To me, the monster was a more interesting character. I guess it's the anthropology major in me surfacing. A great deal of time is spent with the creature telling his story. He becomes aware of the world, learns to read, and he yearns for companionship. Shelley wrote this book at a time of great scientific advances. The Industrial Revolution had just beginning, and as a European, she captured the essence of this time period and projected her warnings of the dangers of science through writing this book. As science develops and we learn more, this book will continue to be timely and relevant. An excellent read, and I implore all of you to give it a chance. I'll discuss the films in a later podcast. The Song of the Night is one of my personal favorites. It's called Without You by Black Lab. Enjoy.
So that's all for this episode. I'm currently working on a couple new ones, and the next one will be on the film Final Destination, where we'll explore the concepts of death and the incarnation known as the Grim Reaper in Western culture. Thanks for listening, and take care. Please visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com and send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com. Articles referenced in the episode can be found on, on the website. And some of the music heard here tonight is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.